Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that you're really going to enjoy. So if you've been paying attention to my channel for any amount of time, you've heard me drone on and on about the managerial elite and the importance of understanding the structures laid out by people like James Burnham and Sam Francis so that we can better grasp what's going on around us, why our politics works the way it does today, why we have the assembly of this thing that many people call the deep state or the cathedral. These are all, I think, really important things to understand. But one question, one that a lot of people ask is, well, is it the structure itself that's the problem or is it the people? Could we just take the people who are bad, take all the woke people, take all the guys at the State Department who are trying to, you know, fly a rainbow flag over every Middle Eastern country, and could we just replace them with a lot of based people, and then we'd have the based bureaucracy, right? And everything would be great. Well, there's a gentleman who has just written a piece that I thought was very interesting and addressed this in a very good way, and I wanted to talk to him about it. So, Kruptos, thank you for joining me, man. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be on here to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, he's got a great sub stack. Make sure that you check it out. I'll make sure that he uh, go, goes ahead and uh, pitches that a few times here near the end. <laughs> But in that sub stack, he does it very nice. And I really appreciate this. He's, you, you always do the, the article and the recording. I do the same thing because sometimes, you know, I've got the time to sit down and read a piece. But a lot of times, you know, I'm mowing the lawn, I'm driving, I'm, you know, trying to take care of something, you know, go to the gym. And I want to make sure I can I can still, you know, get something. So you do both, which which I very much appreciate. But you, you kind of lay out, uh, you know, this, this uh, argument about whether or not we can replace the managerial elite before we jump into any of that though i want to ask you how did you get started writing about this what got you interested uh you know what got you onto the subject yeah well i for me alul goes back like a long way to to college and university i i um i had a professor in undergraduate who was very big on jacques alul and he made us read some and then i um in grad school picked up a couple of his books and just started diving in and was hooked. Actually, the first Alul that I re read, like cover to cover, was um, his last book on technology, The Technological Bluff. And then from there, I went back and reread or re read the earlier books, um, you know, The Technological Society and, and so forth and other ones, um, Propaganda as well, too. It, uh, that was actually the book that the professor introduced us to. I forget the class now, but he introduced us to Jacques Ellul's Propaganda. And that was uh, selection readings from that book was actually the, the first thing that I read of him um, before, you know, the technological bluff. It's just, it was funny, one of those things after, um, believe it or not, Charles Haywood urged me to to start a stub sack of my own rather than pestering him via email about his articles. <laughs> uh, and he was really good, actually, as he said to me, you know, somebody might actually read this. And, and you know, I could maybe put out a word with you from a few people that I know. And I said, well, that would be really nice. But then he says, you know, thinking about it, he says, probably what you should do is maybe like start a blog or a, and then Substack was just kind of taking off then. And you know, like, why don't you try a Substack? So I did that, and then I thought, well, how do I get the word out? And I thought, well, Twitter would be a thing, and so that one thing led to another, and and next thing you know, everything is kind of rolling that way. And then once on Twitter, you know, you'd be reading the timeline, and people would be making these these comments about how things work, and then I'd be thinking, wait a minute, you don't understand anything. So I would just do these long threads on on a and people, then you'd get some guys say like, wow, nobody ever talks about a It's kind of funny that you're talking about a So then after writing a, a couple of pieces, I thought, why don't I start doing some um, deeper dives into a book for people and just um, helping show them some of that. So I've been reading some stuff that rereading some books that I had read before and then actually reading some new stuff that I hadn't read before, like his book on violence, um, Autopsy of Revolution was one, um, and uh, The Political Illusion. Now, the, there's a, the, the, in, the um, translator for The Political Illusion, because Alul is, of course, French and wrote in French. Mm -hmm. um, the translator for Political Illusion makes, made the observation that uh, the technological society, propaganda, and, and the political illusion really form kind of a trilogy. So if you want to get at the core of Alul in terms of his thinking about 
you know, technology, propaganda, and politics, and how the three kind of interplay with each other, reading th those three books would be helpful. Probably the easiest one is actually The Political Illusion, then um, The Technological Society, and Propaganda is a fairly dense and difficult book, um, but well worth the read for those who have read it. Um, Excellent. Well, I want to go ahead and to get, because I haven't read him, so we're going to get into what he has to say, how this applies yeah. to kind of the, the the administrative state and whether this addresses many of the, the managerial elite questions raised by elite theorists and others. But before sure. we get into all that, guys, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsor. Did you feel it, guys? There's been a seismic shift in the legal system. An oppressive legal precedent in place since 1971 was recently overturned by the Supreme Court. The Americans who benefit the most are people of faith, so we need to get the word out. It happened because high school coach Joe Kennedy used to take a knee in prayer on the field after games, until praying in public got him fired. But now the legal precedent that got him fired is gone, and to celebrate that victory, the folks over at First Liberty Institute created the First Freedom Challenge. They want people to fill local stadiums and pray after the game, just like Coach Kennedy on his first game back Friday, September 1st. Here are three things that you can do to promote the First Freedom Challenge. One, sign up at RFIA.org and commit to praying on September 1st. Two, record a short video message challenging people to take a knee in prayer with Coach Kennedy. And three, share your video on social media. Let the world know that the freedoms intended by our founding fathers are back. Join me and take the first freedom challenge. Sign up at RFIA.org. That's RFIA.org. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in. I guess the first question for a lot of people, again, most people who have been to my channel, they're going to have a general understanding of the managerial revolution, a general understanding that there is administrative state, that this does create you know, bureaucracies that have kind of their own motivations, this you know, uh, principal actor problems, all these things that that a lot of people are more familiar with. And they might say, okay, well, can we can we just put our guys in there and, and you know, switch everything over? Can we just take the current administration, uh, switch out, we'll, we'll get the, the, you know, the, we'll train somebody in the new Trump administration or new DeSantis administration to staff it up properly, and we'll just swap in our guys, and that'll kind of correct the course of the current system. Why do you think that is not a good solution? Well, it, it comes down to this, and part of it is the way that we look at technology. So um, Alul argued that the most important thing about technologies are not the actual devices. So, you know, the television, the computer, the automobile, the air conditioner, the light bulb, um, all of these things. He says he argued that... Um, technology is made possible by a certain way of thinking and that is you know technical thinking so he called that that sort of underlying way of thinking technique and so the idea of technique is that you take a problem so let's say for example you've got a craftsman or um, a good example that i use is teaching so you have a person in a classroom they teach they use their skill their ability they're gifted with kids and they come across, so somebody looks at that and says, well, teaching is very up and down. We've got some good teachers, bad teachers. How can we make the, the, the outcomes more consistent and predictable? So somebody sits down, he analyzes the teaching, looks at good teachers, bad teachers, sees what the good teachers do. He breaks it all down into a series of processes and he comes up with a number of methods, develops a program and a series of programs, you know, interviews teachers, does all these things. So he abstracts the process of teaching, shall I say, out of its natural embedded context in the person, the teacher, the classroom. And then he develops a plan or a procedure, a, a set of techniques, tools that then people can use. So then what you do is you plug people back into this system and you train them, not so much to use their own gifts and abilities, and some will inevitably do that, but you basically train them into the system. Right? And then you can do this all across in you know whether it's quality control whether it's customer service because you know anything that has a policy manual um you know it it all ends up being the same thing so you've got so, a so a this is the this is the application of managerial techniques or what most people would call right. best practices today right exactly well the best practice is actually a technique right so anywhere where you have a best practice you have you know, you, that's a sign the technique is operating, I think. And so we tend to approach, Alul argues, 
every problem through this lens. So technique is kind of the default way of, of thinking about the world. He says, argue it, it came up through industrialization, um, you know, after the French Revolution, through the emergence, and, and both in business and in government, the two kind of developed side by side, rationalizing pretty much everything. And now we basically think about every problem this way. You know, how do we come up with a plan? How do we come up with a solution? Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's got kind of a rationalized process procedure for every problem that they face. And so, and, and this is really, you know, you ask yourself, well, why is capital gone woke? Well, because a bureaucracy is a bureaucracy is a bureaucracy. They all basically run on the same mentality. So whether you're trying to make your business more efficient and your outcomes more predictable, you use the same basic ideas. So you come into your factory, you rationalize it, you know, you rationalize all the processes, you develop a set of procedures, um, and then you train your employees to follow them rigidly. And as a result, you produce consistent outcomes. Now, this whole process is very, very powerful. And that's why we've continued to use it. It allowed, at root, the whole thing is organized to shape society largely for the making of money. And that's really, you know, why governments and, and business are together. You basically need the administrative state in order to have what we know as free market capitalism or, you know, the capitalist. So it all kind of runs together and meshes together. And whether it's, you know, think tanks, policy groups, whether it's big business advocacy groups, once you move beyond the level of like a single man shop where everything is embedded in the, the skill and the, the character and the, the culture of the shop, and nothing is written down. Once you move to, you know, that sort of next, you'll talk about that. Well, how do you grow a business? You know, he's not really set up for growth because he hasn't, um, you know, developed the policies or procedures. You know, it's like the same thing with franchising. Everything that you go up with scale requires you to use techniques. So as soon as you move from that small local community, one-man shop up to those higher levels of scale, the 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 thing that enables you to do that is technique and then technique feeds into all the devices and everything else which basically run you know your computer systems and all the rest just reinforce and and allow it to happen now in terms of the administrative state so we understand that we have this basic idea of technique working in the background the the mistake that a lot of people make in looking at technology is that th th we've been taught that technology is neutral right? Technology is neither good nor bad. It depends on how you use it. A classical example of this is the debate over guns, right? You know, a gun itself doesn't kill anybody or the gun itself isn't bad. It really depends how you use it. And Alul would argue that no, the technology of a gun has its own inherent purpose. It's designed to kill people, right? And that's what it does. Or shoot projectiles, like lethal projectiles at a high rate of speed. Um, so. What Alul argues is that the, te the technology is neither good nor bad. It's just ambivalent. It doesn't care. And as a result, he says there's a number, he says all techniques follow a basic pattern is that every technique has positives and negatives, right? So there's a reason why we introduce techniques is that techniques have positives. So we want the positives. But he says with those positives come a price, an evil or an ill that comes along with it. So you might use the gun, for example, to defend your family, defend your country, hunt, and so forth. But in the hands of a deviant, that that same gun be, has, has some very negative effects as well too, right? So, you know, your son might find it in the drawer and he accidentally shoots his sister. Well, you, you know, you could say, well, somebody needs a policy for guns or whatever too, but really it's inherent in the gun. Sooner or later, somebody's gonna get accidentally killed. It's just, that's an ill that goes along with the goods that come from it. And then alongside of this, Alul argues that um, at each stage of technology, right? So as technology gets more sophisticated, the, the goods are still there, but the problems become more and greater every time. And he says the harmful effects are inseparable from the beneficial effects, right? So, and then, so, so before we get too far down that yeah. road, because it's important, but I think I think there's something I want to I want to rewind sure. back a little bit because I want to I want to parse this for a moment. So, sure. if for a moment there, it feels like we conflated social organization and 
technological advancement. Um, and I just want to make sure our, our, is a little thing that these things are always linked together like directly, or are these distinct? Because for instance, uh, technological advancement occurred before bureaucratic managerial social organization at scale. And so the, the, the question is, are these things one and the same? Do they feed off each other? Can they be independently, you know, uh separated like what is what is the relationship he's implying here so what alul is saying and this is the the central thesis of the technological society is that we have um by introducing these things yeah at a certain point in time you know technology technology man have has always been a tool using being right so we've always used tools hmm. but alul says that there was a point where the decisive thing with this tool was not the tool, but the skill they had. So mankind say, for example, like a law is a tool, right? But you would have a few laws embedded in the culture. Maybe they're written down, but these laws are then applied to a broad range of situations. So for perfect example, say the 10 commandments, right? You have a simple set of rules and these 10 rules then you know, govern and, and manage a whole range of situations, right? And so, well, how does it do that? Well, it does that because people using their own innate wisdom and knowledge experience, they then apply these, the, these small number of rules to different situations. The same thing with tools. You have a handful of simple tools that they're not perfect, but you're able to use them in a varied context in different ways. And, and different communities might use these tools in slightly different ways, depending on the culture and history of a, of a community. Right. So what Alul says in this abstraction process, as you then break down the tool use, as you develop more powerful tools, right? Mm -hmm. um, what happens is you begin to organize your society around the use of tools. And at a certain tipping point, um, it is no longer you, your mastery dictating how the tool is used. The tool begins to dictate itself to you. Right. In some sense, the tool becomes what he calls it's a, it's a term that he calls um, self augmentation. So once you reach a tipping point, which we passed a long time ago, technique proliferates almost on its own. So we've been the tech, tech, technical thinking begins to organize society around technique. So everything in society becomes abstracted. Right. Um, I used an example the other day. So on the one hand, you have like relationship advice, being a husband, being a wife, right? But once you start thinking about everything, you know, five steps to, you know, you buy a book, five steps to being a better wife, you know, um, these types of things, you begin to realize that all of your way of thinking is organized around technique and method. There's nothing that you do socially that isn't governed in some way by technique. You could have a good example is say the family dinner right? The Christmas dinner. So you have Thanksgiving dinner. There's a whole set of traditions. The family's always done it this way, you know, you, and it's kind of built into the group of people. But then let's say you want to improve things, you know, so you go buy the book, you know, 15 steps to having great Thanksgiving dinners, right? Now you've entered the, the realm of technique into your system. So you, you break down your family dinner, you introduce all things, you've got new decorations, it's fed, and it, it's, it seems better and more powerful, but now the thing isn't really human anymore. It's it's a function and a product of technique. Yeah, you're, so we'll you're, sorry. Go ahead. So you you apply this then across all of society to just about everything that we do, and everything gets run by a set of techniques given to you by experts who develop them. You know, rationalize just about everything. So now that we have an understanding of kind of how that works, let's let's go to our our main question though. Why can't we just swipe it if, if this is how society has to be organized once it hits a certain level of complexity why don't we just swap in more base guys into this infrastructure then if if, if this is the ne the necessary level of complexity and development once we're going to get to the scale then then why don't we just bring in our own guys and, and do it from there okay so in a sense that there there is some truth to that right okay so we have to remember too, and again, because technology is ambivalent and, and we could draw in here, and I did in the piece, draw in Marshall McLuhan, you know, the medium is the message because he's very good. And what M McLuhan argues is that the most significant thing about a technology is not 
the, the content of the technology, it's the fact of the technology. So for example, um, the automobile, you know, the fact of the automobile and its ability, its mobility and, and, and all the rest of it is more important than any one trip that you might take. So whether you're taking a trip out to the countryside or you're using it to commute to the office, um, those, the trips are really irrelevant relative to things. And same thing with say like something like television. I think that was the example I used in the piece. Um, the fact of the television is more important than any programming. So of course, it's better to have wholesome programming than to be watching porn. But if you're watching both of them, you're still in a sense a couch potato. The TV has affected you, right? Mm -hmm. So now if we carry this over to the administrative state, you know, the, the example I used in, in the piece was, you know, if somebody's going to be writing programming for the, the administrative state, like we took it, if the most important thing is the fact, the technology of the administrative state, well, yeah, of course, I'd want somebody like, say, Chris Rufo making the programming, right? We get nice, wholesome programming. You know, we don't want liberal porn on there. You know, that's good, right? Um, but we still have the problem of the fact of the technology. And um, again, because it's not the technology is not neutral. You can't just take the the technology of the administrative state and then fill it with good content because like the television, it remains the same. It has its effects. And when you look deeper at the notion and, and what um, technique is all about, it's very quickly apparent that the fundamental basics of technique itself um, run hand in hand with the ideas of of um, Enlightenment liberalism. This was a piece N.S. Lyons did uh, a week or week and a half ago on you know the coming together. Why do America and the United and, and or the United States and China look so similar? In a sense, because and he argued that both basically they their administrative states are largely the same, mm. and because of that, they have the same internal logic. So in a sense, technique is really um, the operating system, we might say, of the liberal West. So in a sense, it's a technology really built for liberalism, by liberalism. And so when you come into it, this is why um, with that, that, old, that saying goes, um, you know, any organization that is not explicitly conservative eventually becomes liberal. And the reason why this happens is, is because at its heart, technique is essentially a liberal idea. And so our the, the basic hardware of our society is liberal. So left to its own devices, it's going to continually become liberal, more and more liberal. So let's say you plug in a policy, what will happen is over time, Every policy, even if it's, say, a conservative policy, will start to look more the same. And this is the same thing like with television. All television programming ends up looking the same. You know, you get fast cuts, different views, music. So that all the television shows are begin to get made the same way, even if functionally the content is a little bit different. They all, in the end, they work the same way. You know, they show all television programs, shorten your attention span. They do all these things. So in the end, even if you had, quote unquote, based policies, they would in the end become, they would start to look just like the policies of the left over time. And this is why that sort of natural drift, though, you know, the, the whole idea of policy. And then once you begin to realize that, that everyone, that the whole game is basically played, you know, liberals, um, and, and Democrats, you know, quote unquote, so-called conservatives, Republicans, they're all working within this system. So anywhere where you've got think tanks, policy groups, all the rest, they're all basically extensions of this same bureaucratic system. And this is what Alul argues that, um, and he, we can get into that more as well too, like why you can't actually reform a bureaucracy. Um, and in his, in his book, um, Autopsy of a revolution. Alul just basically comes and says it right out outright that if you are concerned at all about humanity, he says that the state is the enemy. Now, when he says the state, basically he's looking at the architecture of technique. And and so really, if in the end, if you want to deal with the problem, that you pretty much have to put an end to modernity. And that's and that's kind of the the frightening black pill that. 
there, if you say there's only ways through, that it's really only in the demise of the West that you know you stamp out the idea of of technique um, everywhere. Because um, if you don't, it starts to come back again, and the logic of it. And we can talk a little bit more about that as well too, and 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 why that you know why if if you don't get rid of it, you know, root and core branch right down to the the base and just you know throw it all on the midden heap, so to speak, that it comes back. And essentially it comes back because it's a powerful idea. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll definitely want to explore that. Cause I think, uh, you know, like you said, that's a, that's a pretty big implication uh, of kind of where this is going. But before we get into that guys real quick, let's hear from ISI universities today. Aren't just neglecting real education. They're actively undermining it and we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The intercollegiate studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference. Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, go to ISI.org. That's ISI.org. All right, so let's get into a little more of a back and forth because this is where I actually want to pick your brain on this. This is, I, knew, sure. I, knew, I knew this is where we were going to get to. Uh, well, having, you read the piece, right? <laughs> having read your piece, so I knew we were going to get here. But I think this is where things. Um, I, I think these are good insights. I think they're important. I think this this is a a, a critical point that a lot of people miss uh, coming from a from a different direction than I usually approach it. So that's why I wanted to bring this in. But but now I want to bring in a few other thinkers, sure, and and compare and contrast here. So the first thing we want to look at, you know, you made the big statement there. The only way this ends is kind of the end of modernity which yes. is is a huge statement and i think there's there's truth there but i want to i want to kind of walk people into to what that means and kind of where that comes from so so for instance uh looking at sam francis and leviathan and sure. his enemies he he looks at uh kind of the managerial state he looks at the managerial uh revolution and then the state it produced and he says basically the reason that the right was unable to really push back against uh, the left. The reason that it just kind of got assimilated and the, and the new rights attempts to push back of it just became, you know, kind of Reaganism and, and then uh, Bushism and, and uh, what, you know, kind of standard GOP fare is that it was not able to address the underlying issues of the managerial system or, or technique here, as you're talking about the, the, the production of technique. So I guess the question is, could any, kind of current understanding of the american right really have done that though because it sounds like you're saying is basically just like all of modern liberalism and all of its economic and social uh you know uh, or, uh institutions basically have to come apart for any of this to go away yeah and this is this is essentially the point that alul makes in one of the chapters in the political illusion now and and he he walks you through it you know why the administrative state can't be like reformed right so and and it's 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 even worse than the fact that it can't be reformed so alul calls and, and schmidt recognized this as well too that the administrative state is the current power right you know we we talk about politicians and the political game and i know you basically like the whole election thing is a sham and so forth but what alul argues is that it's actually backwards from the way that we think right so that we he, alul says that 
the politicians are not there to represent us and provide oversight to the bureaucracy. He says the politicians are there to represent the bureaucracy to us and to gain legitimacy for the plans of experts, right? Whether those come in the form of policy papers or things. Um, and, and here's what he says. He says, okay, so take your politician. You think that your politician is going to go to Washington to reform the bureaucracy, right? Going to drain the swamp, okay? Your politician is right away out of the gate divided because he has to get elected, right? So his focus is in part always on staying in office. He has to keep his voters happy. He has to address that. So it, first thing is, is he's not full-time an administrator. And then secondly, the skills that are required to become a full-time administrator are not the same skills that are required to become a full-time politician. So chances are he's going to be bad at it. So um, he's going to get in and reform the bureaucracy, right? Okay, let's say he gets into office and now he issues a bunch of orders on how he wants things to be changed. He sends out all the directives. He's got a plan in his mind. He sends those directives out to all of you know the senior um, the senior bureaucrats. Well, what's going to happen to those directives? The senior directives, gonna, you know, the senior bureaucrats are going to look at those. They're going to throw them into committee. There's going to be discussion, and you know maybe a few things emerge on the other side in line with you know what the the politician wants. But chances are they're just going to disappear into the system, right? Um, there might be a few small changes here and there, but basically they'll just be absorbed. And, and you know, there's just such a network and nodes of, of decision-making committees, study panels, all the rest of it, um, chains of, of command, different groups here, different groups there, this bureau, that bureau, they all have their little turf wars. And this these directives just get kind of lost in there, right? So then the smart politician says, oh, you know what I need then when we go into office, we're going to have a really good group of people, right? We're going to get together a fantastic team. We've got, say, 500 top qualified um, people who are just real hard-nosed administrators, right? Well, who are these people? And, and what involves? So all of these hard-nosed administrators, they're probably going to need staffs and and what you now then have going into office is you've created your own mini bureaucracy to battle the existing administrative state. So now you have two battling administrative states. So you've just basically expanded the problem, right? Well, okay, so let's say you have a, you know, a policy or an advocacy group. You're going to stay away from the politicians. You're going to have an advocate. Well, okay, so you've got an advocacy group. This advocacy group you know, they they lobby the government, they get some of their policies. Oh, the, the you know, the bureaucrats actually like what they have to say. So the bureaucrats say, hey, why don't you come on board and help us write the legislation and develop the policies? Now your advocate, advocacy group is part of the administrative state. It just continues to grow and grow. And then let's just say, for example, you do get in there and you can, you know, streamline it, cut it down, um, enact a bunch of policies. In the end, all that you've done now is make the administrative state stronger. So that the next time, let's say the administration shifts and there's a different group of people in, they're ready to be um, to go with this new, stronger, streamlined administration. And you know, chances are, you know, as we saw this with the deep state, because the, the administrative state has its own agenda, if your agenda differs from that, uh, that agenda as a politician from the state, the state is now going to actively begin flexing against you, actively undermining. And this is what we saw during the Trump administration, right. that they took their hand, the, the gloves came off. And, and then during COVID again, you know, doubly so, you know, you, you'd have these bureaucrats showing up at the microphone and you're thinking, and they're writing policy. And you're like, well, we didn't elect these people. Like, um, how did this get policy get enacted? And really what you are seeing is, you know, past the veil of the system. These guys are writing all the policies anyways. Um, and they give them to the politicians. And during an election cycle, you would, the politician would have his 10-point plan. Well, who writes all those 10-point plans? It's the same experts who staff, you know, staff the think tanks, the advocacy groups, and the bureaucracies. They might come from corporate life. Well, in corporate life, what have you got there? Well, you've got bureaucracies and committees and policy plans and so forth. So it doesn't matter wherever they come from. They're all basically part of the same system. And 
you as a politician, if you think that you're going to get in there and um, exercise oversight on behalf of the voters are just kidding yourself because really you need the bureaucracy more than the bureaucracy needs you. And so in effect, what happens is, is that the politicians become the front men for warring factions within the expert class. And so Schmidt makes this point, the difference between a democracy and a, a plebiscitory uh, system. So in a democracy, you as the citizen set the agenda for the community, for the country, so forth, right? In a plebiscite, a plan is presented to you and you vote yes or no on that plan. So we don't really live in a democracy. We live in a plebiscitory voting legitimacy system, whatever, however you would call it. So we vote on these plans, but it's not really democracy. So what's happening is that the, the expert class gives the politicians their plans and then we vote on these plans. So what you're seeing in the battle between politicians is really conflicts within the expert class. So it's all a battle within the administrative state itself, broadly speaking. And so, so you're seeing, yeah, go ahead. So so the thing I wanna, I wanna break up here, cause I think this is all right. Like I think this is all correct uh, about kind of how our system really functions. It's, it's uh, these, um, it's these uh, you know, larger than, than any one human systems that people are conforming themselves to rather than the, the system's not serving the people, the, the, the people are serving the system. Every, every interaction is really about kind of these warring factions of these systems. I think all of that is correct. The thing that I want to understand about Alul is whether he sees this as a manifestation of our, of our current system or as a, as a recurring issue, because I think of something like Spangler and Oswald Spangler you know, it describes these different moments, these different, uh, you know, phases that each civilization goes through. And he talks about how every high civilization as it like transitions from its cultural phase to its civilizational phase, it, it has to transfer much of its uh, kind of natural animating meta metaphysical spirit, its traditions, its folkways, its, its ways of being has to move them into bureaucracies and institutions because Basically, it's expanded. Its, its civilization is expanded beyond its original reach, and those you know that have been added to the civilization are too far away from kind of the original formation. And so, the only way to continue this is to bureaucratize it, is to, to expand it, uh, is to uh, to turn it into process. And when this happens, basically, eventually, the process becomes the point, and no longer you know, kind of the the continuance of those traditions, those ideals, those goals, those kind of things. And so the, the bureaucracy shapes the thing and runs away with it. And and this is a process he describes as, as, as kind of, again, occurring over and over cyclically throughout history. So are what is what we looking, are we just looking at the latest iteration of something that is a historic inevitability? Or is there something very particular about kind of the current liberal democratic bureaucratic kind of paradigm that that we need to understand here. Yeah, so I think it would be the latter that you know you're you're right it's like empires and great civilizations rise at a certain point in time you you need you know as as they scale up that you need something like a bureaucracy and and the difference in the an old, what we might call an old style bureaucracy and the new sort of technical system that we have. Um, and the reason why the technical system replaced it um, is in many ways, the, the old system was based upon persons. And I, I wish I could find where the quote or the reference was, but there was um, a, there was a period where um, Roman administrators as they took the position, would have to declare how they would plan to run during their time in office. And so every Roman official, as they came in, had their own way of doing things, right? And so mm -hmm. even in the in the British system um, prior to, and then you would say in like the Napoleonic government, so you had administrators, right? Before like the Napoleonic government before, Napo or the, the French government before Napoleon, because Napoleon was the first, you know, technocrat really. Um, is that the the way things were done were largely done um, in the way that the chief officials wanted them to be done. 
there wasn't necessarily the same level of standardization. There wasn't necessarily the same level of abstraction. And you learn various tasks, like say clerking, for example. You learn clerking and accounting and so forth on the job. By, by it was you you picked it up and you were taught with it you know sort of the 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 culture of it right so the systems weren't nearly abstract and for the bourgeoisie class as they were beginning to to flex and and engage you you know as you mechanize everything part of the reason why the old monarch, monarchical system you know based upon um, personages in the administration is that it wasn't efficient enough it wasn't you know, you couldn't guarantee the same level of consistent outcomes. And so even though, you know, these administrations in the past could be very good if staffed by very talented people, um, they still weren't consistent. So what happens is, is then you replace this person-centered, cultured-centered, embedded way of doing a bureaucratic administration. And this can have many of the characteristics of of your bureaucracy you know get little petty fiefdoms and all the rest of it you know what i mean there are some of the similar characteristics but what really takes it to the next level is this the, the technical system so if you know you could you could run an empire but guaranteed one of the things that Alul notes in um in autopsy of a revolution is that if you got rid of the technical systems everything would be degraded. So your ability to make money, the efficiency of the system. So, but you would have to go back to a kind of person-based um, uh, sort of system, almost what you would call like a sort of a patronage and spoils type thing. So it'd just be sort of the old boys network, right? And so mm -hmm. you would, and then when the old boys came in, they would just kind of do, everyone would sort of do things their way. But one of the things that obviates against this, right, is, you know, you have computer systems now, you have policies, you almost, can't go back that to that older style without i mean like how do you go back to a thing where stuff is embedded and it's passed on person to person um everything nowadays is through policy and training and systems right so um in many ways the system dictates how you do things but yeah it, it can be done and so there are similarities and contrasts but the sort of the jet fuel that really makes bureaucracy sing so to speak in the modern world and really allowed the West, the post-industrial West to explode the way it was, was the power of harnessing technique and applying it to what was before a very inefficient, lumpy, and um, you know, human-centered bureaucratic process, which could be just as Kafka-esque, but lacked sort of the jet fuel power of, of technique. So Nick Land sees this problem, right? Uh, he's, he's one of many who's addressed this. And for him, basically, the kind of the self-exciting cybernetic feedback loop of this auto-improving technique is unstoppable, right? It, he says that this is where the the only way out is through comes from, right? Is yeah. that this this is going to run away? Uh, because... I, I tend to have, I tend to agree with him. Okay, yeah. So so you think Land is right that this is not this is not a process that can be arrested. By like human will, we're not going to say, okay, everybody, uh, we're dismantling these massive bureaucracies. We're all going to focus on uh, more embedded and and person and uh, you know personable uh, uh, bureaucracies, and uh, we're we're just going to all scale back our style of living uh, to to accommodate with with kind of this new understanding of how humanity should be organized. Well, yeah, and and, and really, um, there's there's two things that that would obviate against it. And this one one of these Alul talks about in in the political illusion. He says we really live under the illusion that we have political choices, right? He so the example you know is is tanks. If your enemy has tanks, you know, or the big one now is nuclear weapons, right? If if you don't have the same level of technical um, weaponry as your opponent, um, you run the risk of being overrun. So there is a whole range of, the, and and then the the natural thing. I mean, Alul was also a Christian, and Alul understood that you know people are sinful. If there's money to be made, a technology will happen, no matter how much the the evils of that technology outweigh the goods. Right. So. Um, there is this thing, as long as it's there in the way, and it's almost like why it's like biting off the apple in the Garden of Eden. Once you've opened that up, you now have to deal with its reality, the power that technique gives you to control society, to harness human resources, 
and to make money, um, you know, and to exercise control, all of these things have to be done because if people can exercise control with technique, they will. So there's that kind of fact that you you simply you have to deal with it at, at some level. Um, if your opponent, if your enemy has technology and technique, unless you want to be run over by your enemy, you don't have a choice. You've got to embrace technique. And then on the other side, um, in his book, Autopsy of a Revolution, Alul makes the argument that revolts have always been with us. So you've always had coups, you've always had revolts. Um, but the difference between a coup and a revolt and a revolution, so beginning with the French and the American revolutions, um, the difference, and, and this is sort of began the revolutionary period, is that what makes a revolution a revolution is that it has a plan, right? So, you know, with a revolt, there's a series of grievances. So you you rebel because of your grievances. So the grievances may or may not get addressed. Your revolt gets put down, so forth and so forth, right? But what happens with a revolution is that then there's a plan that is put in place. And so the revolution requires managers. And so, you know, right away, what happens? What happens with the American Revolution? So your revolt is successful. Well, what do we, you do then? Is you put in place a new system. So you develop, you develop a rationalized functioning of government and society. You have your constitution and so forth, and it's put in place, but it's a simple technology put in place by bourgeoisie managers who have the skill to take an idea, a plan, and turn it into a functioning reality, right? So every revolution now requires, to become a revolution requires managers. So you might say to yourself, well, let's have a revolution and let's overturn this current system that we have. And we'll put in place, like you say, a new system that's all embedded, it's homey, you know, community, small shops and everything. The problem is you can't do that because the moment you have a plan, you need um, managers to enact that plan. As soon as you have managers, you have technique. And as soon as you have technique, the system comes back again. So really, as, as Nick Lance says, the only really way, and this is why for me, increasingly, I, I say to people, I said, the, the, the option that we need to realize is that, and this is sort of that, you know, coming from a Christian perspective, being in the world, but not of the world, that really, you know, maybe um, the, uh, the, the Benedict option, but based, as somebody said to me a while back, is that we as, as, as people on the right need to really seriously begin thinking about, um, okay, we can't take the system down, but we can start to build a system or build a, develop communities in which our approach to technology is, is, is both realistic, but also intentional, and that we can create both a refuge and a contrast to the system. And hopefully that when the whole thing does crash, and it will, um, because, you know, um, we keep moving from like an old jalopy that will run forever to wanting to build a Formula One race car. But if you've watched Formula One racing, um, how long do those cars last, right? You know, it's between an old um, uh, um, logistics network. So you have a global system of, of um, you know, parts of it. It used to have warehouses and it was lumpy or whatever too, but now you have just-in-time delivery. So you have this race, this 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 race car that we've built. While you have the COVID shutdowns, and all of a sudden everybody realizes that you know we're basically you know a couple steps away from crashing the whole system. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, for many people who think about these things, like I could have told you that, yeah, well that's what would happen if you shut down the whole. That's what I said to my friends. Like I said, you can't shut economy an economy down. This thing has to keep moving, um, because all of these cascading system failures will just begin to sort of pile up on you, right? Um, and so eventually the system, this race car that we built, it will, it's, it's, it becomes increasingly fragile and eventually it will begin to collapse and there will be something that will pressure it. And then I think it's beholden upon us as conservatives who see this to already be ready. And I think, you know, because I mean, for things that I've noted in other pieces, um, this system of technique, um, as, as Heidegger says, enframes us, right? So you know, you want to find a place where we're not alienated from the, the world and from each other, because that's the thing that technique does. It alienates us from real life, real encounters with the world and create these refuges where we can encounter each other, where we can encounter the world and we can rediscover a proper relationship with our tools. Now, we might still need tanks because the regime has tanks, um, but hopefully 
our relationship with our tanks is different than the relationship that the regime has, if that makes sense. Yeah. So to clarify, because I think a lot of people hear this and they're like, so we have to go back to the Stone Age. We've got to start, you know, we got to start, you know, uh, carving everything back, you know, out of whalebone again or something. I, I well, think they, they, they hear this and they say, you know, so the only answer is to just, you know, is to go uh, full Uncle Ted and, you know, go off the reservation and, and live in a shack or something. But it sounds like what you're saying, and this is what I've heard from from many people. I think of, uh, I, 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 you know, I think of people like Alexander Dugan who talk about yeah. kind of this this post liberal future, kind of this post modernity. Uh, you're you're going to end up in a scenario where it's not that these things don't exist. It's not that that there that technique is not still going to exist. That the the technology and these things won't still be around. But we will have the those that have survived it. Those who are flourishing post kind of the collapse of this generally far too spread logistical network that will come apart eventually. Like those that flourish after it will be those that understood, understand how to take what exists now and form a more healthy relationship with it. Have a, have a, a kind of, kind of you know, take the lessons of liberalism, take the experiences, take those on board. They won't, they won't suddenly disappear, but they will be something that is tr that are transformed by kind of a new way in which people can relate to these technologies, these social organizations, these understandings. Well, and that's the kind of thing where you you almost kind of could see sort of a way that you know as communities begin to re-embed um, and 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 things become organic again, that because you now are on the other side of taking a bite of the apple, you know you could see that you know if somebody suggests technical thinking, that it becomes a kind of taboo. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, no, 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 we don't we don't we don't do that. That's not the we, way we do. Things. We do not make minds in the in the or yeah. we do not make uh, machines in the image of man. Right. But but the other That's way right. around, we, we don't make uh, we don't form people's minds to the image of machinery. That's right. We, we don't do it that way here. You right. know, that's just, well, why not? Well, well, we you know, let me tell you the old stories, right, right. Of, of days. Right. And so yeah, you, you can picture how some of that, that will, I think, you know, Paul Kingsnorth has done some, some imaging along that way and storytelling of, of looking back, but that, that's kind of, you know, where, where we're, you know, where you, when you look at it thoughtfully, that this is where you've got to go. So you have to prepare yourself and really what the regime thrives on right now and, and sustains it is its ability to produce prosperity. Right. And so that will probably be the stress point is as soon as they cannot provide the prosperity for enough people. And that means for conservatives, you have to be readying yourself to live in a world that is not as prosperous as the one that we have now. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't be as sad. It might actually be more um, existentially satisfying than the one we have now. It's just it won't be as comfortable. It'll be a lot harder work, um, but you'll be closer to people, all of these things, right? So it's, it's um, you know, it's an interesting thing when you look at it. Alul tries to always be as hopeful as possible, but the, the you know, the people have observed that his writing has sort of two sides. There are his, his kind of, you know, public scholarship and then kind of his, his Christian writings. And you almost have to take the two of them together. So you have to really, you have to also understand that, you know, what really allows you to connect with humanity again and with God is, is reconnecting with God, you know, because that's the one thing that the regime wants to do is to cut you off from, from the supernatural and the metaphysical. And so you reestablish a relationship with God, reestablish a relationship with other people, and then sort of find yourself and begin to ask again, you know, so how do we relate with tools? And hopefully we can get into it being a little, a little wiser. Um, yeah, so things may not be as efficient in in the end, but that's kind of, you know, what comes of it. You know, you 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 really do have to emerge on the other side, where, you know, the idea of taboo or the idea of technique becomes almost a taboo for people. Like you said, there there is a cost for these things. We like to pretend that it's it's all uh, it's all uh, solutions, but it's actually mostly trade offs, and uh, that that's yeah. a that's a difficult thing for people to and realize, but essential. And I think that's really when, when a lot of us, you know, there's the whole boomer con phenomenon. And they're not everyone is like that. But I think part of what makes the boomer con um, phenomenon what it is, is this expectation that we can make things right again. We can bring things, quote unquote, back to the way they were when we remembered when everything was good, but without any personal cost. Right. 
And that's really the key that has, I think for a lot of people on the right that has to be understood is that there's no way through to a better, more flourishing society without paying a personal cost or social cost, community cost. And, you know, life will be harder. Um, it will be less prosperous, but it will, um, you know, and that's the utopian side, at least in theory, you know, it should be more fulfilling. <laughs> Well, I think that's a lot of really important things for people to think about. Again, I think, you know, very thought provoking, not the easiest uh, message, I think, for some, but I think it's really essential and a lot of people need, need to start thinking about that. So I really appreciate you coming on, Kryptos. Uh, before we pivot over to, I think we got a couple super chats. Before we go over there, uh, what where can people find your work? So I, the nice thing is, is, um, in relaunching my Substack, now I have purchased my domain name, so it's really easy. Seekingthehiddenthing.com, seekingthehiddenthing.com, and on Twitter it's at underscore cryptos, and that's where you can find me. And, and um, I'm generally pretty good. If you have questions, you know, hit me up, and um, hopefully I don't get overwhelmed with it. But if if you have questions, I'm more than happy to ask. Um, some of this stuff, is, some of the pieces that I wrote are not behind paywalls. Others are. Um, but you should be able to nose around and find enough here to on the site to sort of satisfy you that way. Excellent. Yeah. And like I said, uh, he he records these as well as writes them. So if you're somebody who's more audio yeah. uh, based or if you're, you, you know, you need to have that found time, you can always uh, get those there. So make sure that you're checking out all of his work. All right. Let's go over to the questions of the people here real quick. Uh, we've got one. It looks like Coney uh, current year. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, thoughts on Hop's private covenant uh, communities as an alternative and thoughts on taking advantage of places where the administration has failed like Detroit. Um, so uh, I would say I'm actually rereading Democracy of the God that failed and I just uh, re I just reread uh, what must be done. I'll say that uh, Hop is always very strong. He's, he's great by giving people um solid libertarian arguments he's the best libertarian it's not even close uh he, he takes his his theory of power from bertrand de juvenile which makes his analysis very good but when he gets to the covenant communities the the problem is and it's the thing i see over and over again with with the kind of libertarians and anarcho uh capitalists that kind of thing uh you're just recreating the state <laughs> you're just making the state and you're just calling it something else uh, i get that the idea is that the stuff is all going to be voluntary it's all going to be contractual I think this is an assuming a certain affinity for contractual law that exists in very specific communities uh, that doesn't really map onto the wider human experience. And it feels like 10 minutes in, somebody's just going to be like, well, what if I stopped to be like being a private contractor for security and I just conquered people and, and, and the state is reborn. Well, and also you have to understand or in that like, the 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 whole notion of building a state on um, contract law is, in a sense, um, the exercise of commerce and technique. Oh, absolutely, um, on the mental estate, right? Yeah. So, really, if you go back to the idea of using contracts, you're starting from the same place as the current liberal system, and it, it only ends one way, and that's we've seen that show, and we're just watching the reruns at this point. Yeah, which is why Hoppe's attack on democracy by just kind of showing uh, its contrast with monarchies is very strong, but Hoppe is not actually a monarchist. And so he's not really promoting monarchy. He's not looking at any of the strengths of monarchy. He's only showing like the ways in which democracy fails in comparison. He never thinks about the fact that like actually the the, the things that, you know, he thinks that what creates kind of the the better system with monarchy is the is the ownership it's all about the property right and he's right that those incentives exist inside that sphere but he's not understanding the decisionism behind it he's not understanding the you know the the kind of the singular vision the things that the the elimination of bureaucracy through kind of the you know the the sovereign and so i think uh well again it's, it's an excellent book everyone should read hoppa i i do think the covenant communities is where he just routinely falls short um well it, it, the thing is also too, and this is something that that Schmidt notes, is that once you cast aside the old metaphysics upon which the monarch is built, um, this idea, and and Alul also raises the same question, is that there there was a time when 
the idea of revolting against the king was just unthinkable because it's like revolting against God. Yeah, you need right? the political theology behind it. That's right. The, the so systems need, but, cannot be separated. And and that's why Schmidt says in the current context, you can't go back to a monarch because you lack the metaphysical framework to make a monarchy work. He says the only thing is, in a sense, to go forward to the dictator who exercise, who rules by, but basically in a Nietzschean form, um, you know, the will to power. He exercises his will upon the people. And that, it, I think, essentially, he's right. And that would be when we talk about building alternative communities, part of that task would be over time to, to recover that um, that 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 metaphysic as well, too. And then the second one here, thoughts on taking advantage of places where the administrative state has failed, like Detroit. Um, I mean, in the case that warlordism emerges, I'm not sure exactly. Well, uh, but yeah, that may, feel that one. That, that may be referencing like an I am seventeen seventy six piece from a couple of weeks ago, where oh, okay. they talked because because there was a, there was an idea that um, you know we have to get out of the cities and go to the country, right? And I forget who the author was, but he wrote a piece and saying, hey, listen, if you go to the country, it just kind of increases your cost because you got to drive, you got to have all these other, th you know what I mean? But he says if you want to set up alternate communities, he says go to a place like Detroit because there they have all of these areas where people defaulted on loans, defaulted on their property taxes, and the the city is just now bulldozing these houses. So just you go can have an a failed city. Well, not even more so than, but like basically go in and colonize it. So you get right. a group of people, you get like say two hundred of these lots, and you develop you know a colony inside downtown Detroit for next to nothing. Right. And you're close to all the services and blah, 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 blah. The other thing is, is that the prices that you live in inner city Detroit, which, you know, I've been to inner city Detroit. It's not, it's not people, but you could make it more. And that's kind of the idea is that you, you sort of, you go into these liberal territories and you basically conquer them from within, gotcha. which is, it was a fascinating idea. And, and one that is sort of, it's, it's intriguing enough for me not to dismiss it entirely. No, that is an interesting way to, to uh, address that. I, that, yeah, I, I can see. I can see how you could make a, an interesting case for that. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Again, thank you to Kryptos for coming on. Make sure you're checking out all of his work over at his uh, Substack. Uh, the piece is excellent. I think you should read the original just to get all of the context. We, we went through many different uh, parts of it, but we also went other directions. So there's still plenty that we didn't get to. So make sure that you guys check that out. If it's your first time here on the channel, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. And if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Orin McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do leave that rating or review, I really appreciate it. All right, guys, thank you once again for stopping by. And as always, I will talk to you next time.